0: If you unpack those four, he talks about courage kind of being the cardinal virtue, because none of those other three can happen if you don't first step out into the unknown.
1: You're listening to The Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Tony Shea. Your personal core values define who you are. My guest today, Brad Peterson, is a good friend and a true values-driven entrepreneur. He's a founder and a serial entrepreneur who started his first venture during his teen years and eventually created a number of large-scale enterprises. While initially pursuing a career in healthcare, he was inspired to get into the toy business where he invested over 25 years of his life. And Brad's latest major venture is Pila, a social enterprise committed to creating a waste-free future with his hit product Lomi. Brad's also the author of a new book, Startup Santa, which will be available to buy by the time you hear this. Brad, welcome to the Elevate Podcast.
0: Bob, it is so great to be here with you. As we were just talking ahead of this, uh, we've done quite a bit of life together. We've been through the blood and the flood, talking about our business adventures. And so I really have been looking forward to this conversation, knowing that we're going to get authentically into it today. So really excited to be here.
1: We have been through a few different chapters of our books of life, which intersect. So Speaking of books of life, I always find it interesting, particularly with entrepreneurs. What did the prologue look like? Was little Brad hawking lemonade at school and those entrepreneurial genes show themselves very early?
0: Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. Are entrepreneurs born or made? And I actually think there's a bit of both. So at an early age, I definitely showed entrepreneurial tendencies. wasn't lemonade But there was things like I would sneak into the golf courses at night with my snorkeling mask and dive for golf balls, take like a a net with me. And it was just, it was amazing. Get to the bottom of the pond, you just see all these little lumps everywhere and you're just scooping them up. And then I'd put them in egg cartons and sell an egg carton of a dozen of them for five bucks. So it was things like that, that, you know, always had side hustles at 16. I tell people I had like the perfect business because we lived on an acreage near a forest that was in Canada called Crown land. So anyone has access to it. So I started a wood cutting business. And the reason it was a perfect business is I used my dad's truck, his chainsaw, his gas, his splitting mall. And I had this endless force. And his trees. And his trees. So you had free supply. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And I put my price at five bucks less than the competition and hired friends from school because I got so busy. And I think I paid them five, six bucks an hour. And uh, I was in my mid teens and that time funded most of my uh, endeavors in terms of outdoor pursuits. So, yeah, at a very early age, even though I was destined to be in healthcare, I was definitely showing entrepreneurial tendencies.
1: So, you didn't learn the true lesson of margins early on when most of your costs were not real. (laughs) Maybe that haunted you in the toy business. No, we'll get into it. Yeah. I think I pursued the SaaS
0: model initially. It was perfect margin business. Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. Just didn't go on forever. So what got you into healthcare? That was your first foray into the business world, right?
0: Well, it was what I was supposed to do. So I grew up in the prairies of Canada and what you're supposed to do in the prairies of Canada is you're supposed to either be in agriculture or oil. That's what people do there. That being said, my family were health practitioners. My father was a chiropractor His father and mother were chiropractors, and my great-grandfather was actually the very first chiropractor in Denmark. And ever since I was a wee boy, all of my dad's colleagues used to say, you're going to grow up and be a chiropractor like your daddy. And I just kind of nodded and accepted that that's what Petersons do. We grow up and we become chiropractors. I mean, this is the lineage. So I started down that path and I went to school and took my uh, science diploma, which is the basically precursor to chiropractic college. And I got derailed. It's kind of like the story of my life, you know, a series of happy accidents that come along and open new doors and new possibilities. And for me, that was, I met my, what would then become my wife. She was at school. She was taking her degree. I had finished mine. I was ready to go down to chiropractic school. And she let me know that she wasn't really into doing a long distance relationship. So I decided to hang out for a year and somebody with entrepreneurial tendencies sitting around, just waiting for someone tends to get themselves into either trouble or business. And I chose business. (laughs) <laughs> or a combination. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's how I got my start in my first venture. All right. So what was the... So you built
1: this toy company 1.0. What is the short but lever version of the toy story? Because there's also a lot of ups and downs in that journey. Yeah, for sure. So the, the Cliff Notes version of that story is I read... That's the word I was looking for, Cliff Notes. I haven't used them in so long.
0: <laughs> no, it's the, what's the GPT version? Yeah. <laughs> you know, in Canada, it's Cole Notes. So just so you know, we have our own version of that. Yeah. It, it was very simple. I read an article in a magazine about a kid who had invented a flying toy. I was always very playful, like right from a young age and was very adventurous and a bit mischievous, but always in a good way. I never got myself into real trouble, but you know, mischief was definitely part of my DNA. So I read the story, I called the kid, I bought some products from him. I started playing with them, like, wow, this thing is so cool. And then I got thinking, hmm, maybe I could sell these. And so that was the beginning of basically becoming a busker because I bought a bunch of product and then I went to parks and I was throwing this thing around. And, you know, I was selling them and but I was as good as my last event and realized that wasn't very scalable. And so then I started setting up kiosks and malls and kiosks and mall also not very scalable. And I started getting to retail and Eventually, I built the largest toy distribution company in Canada. So it was kind of like a series of events and doors opening and some closing, but just kind of put me on this path of becoming eventually the largest toy distributor in Canada. And that got me sort of my taste buds wetted for the toy business. And it was awesome because I built this company. And the one thing that I was willing to do is work really hard. My dad modeled that for me as a young kid, and I was the hardest working person I knew. And so just through the sheer force of will, um, I built this company to become, you know, as I said, the largest toy distributor in Canada. And we were getting accolades and recognized. There was a, something called the Profit 100 in Canada. And for five years in a row, we were listed in the top 100 fastest growing companies. I was nominated on the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year, won awards, and I was on speaking circuits. And like, I was feeling pretty good I'm in my 20s. And I'm like, I'm making it happen. Went to your head, right to your head, right? Right to yeah. your head. <laughs> then in 2006, I hit a wall. I came to learn that a little bit of ego can lead to a lot of overhead. And I found a hard way that you can actually grow too fast. I don't think that ever comprehended in my mind that that was possible. I mean, the whole idea of building businesses is to grow them. But I discovered that if you build your business without the right supporting balance sheet, you can break covenants with your bank. And when you break covenants with your bank, they put you in special loans. And when you get in special loans... It's like timeout for business owners, right? Is that the equivalent for people who don't know what it is? Yeah, I think it's time out and I'm going to strangle you and let you breathe very little while you're in your timeout because you're only getting a drip of supply of cash while you're in that timeout. So it's a slow bleed. I mean, we wrestled with it for two years trying to save it. I Actually, instead of stopping to see if maybe the business model was broken and maybe the reason we got there was that the margin stack wasn't properly set up, I just said, I can just fix this by growing faster. So I went out and found some investors who were willing to put more money into the company, but their condition on putting more money in the company was if only they would be able to do a restructuring. And restructuring is a fancy word for bankruptcy. For those of you who don't know that that's what that means, but it basically allows you to just reassess how your cap table and your balance sheet is set up. They brought in new capital. And for two years, I wrestled to try and fix the business. But I should have taken the time to realize that actually the business model was broken, that the margins were too anemic. I didn't have the perfect margin businesses. I had when I had the woodcutting business. And so two years later, we actually put a bullet in it. It was the final bankruptcy. And that was the end of the first chapter of my journey in the toy business of being a toy distributor in Canada.
1: And I know you're very always thoughtful and reflective. So you thought about some things about that business and the model that you wanted to make sure you didn't repeat again.
0: So how did that sort of lead to
1: your second act in the toy business?
0: Yeah, look, it was interesting because my group of investors, then business partner and the chairman of my company did not want to accept the fact that all this money they had just put in to try and fix the company was now gone. And when I went to them and say, look, you're like it's broken. I can't fix this. They said, not acceptable. You need to come back with the solution.
1: We want to throw good money after bad.
0: Right. Yeah. And that actually led to learn from what happens. We learn from reflecting on what happens. And I took the time, I stepped away from the business and I took the time to reimagine what a future could look like. And I don't know about you, but for me, it's really hard. I find it very hard to figure out what I want. It's much easier and clear for me to figure out what I don't want. And so I started to list all the things I didn't want to have anymore in the business of the future. In other words, I didn't want to be just a distributor in Canada. Well, number one, I didn't want to be a distributor anymore. I want to have control over my products. Number two, I didn't want to be just focused on Canada. You know, I wanted to have the ability to go beyond that. Number three, I didn't want to have a warehouse full of inventory that ultimately is what became a massive burden on the company. Do you learn what most
1: entrepreneurs learn the hard way? They don't that cash and profit are very different, right? That's right. Profit can be excellent as you run out of cash because you have all this inventory in the warehouse.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's this adage, and it seems trite, but it's so true. You know, top line's vanity, bottom line sanity, cash flow is your reality, and ultimately, that last piece is what's mission critical for you to make sure you never run out of cash. It's like running out of chips at the poker table. When you run out of cash. You're out of the game, right? So that became the impetus for starting to build an entirely new business model. Which, and I mean, the time it was super painful, super challenging because my identity was around you know having built that company and it was a part of who I was, and you know I birthed it into into the marketplace. And so when it died, a piece of me died with it. But it was my inconvenient blessing because it forced me to stop, reflect, and imagine a new future. And the new business that I launched then in 2009 turned out to be infinitely better and more sustainable, and more enjoyable than that initial company ever was. And I never would have known it if I hadn't had that sudden stop that was forced on me. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years
1: ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space, and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info the ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash elevate. Yeah, I mean, sometimes failing or choosing it or choosing for you or running into these things, we think it's the worst thing in the world when probably drudging on the same path is much worse than someone
0: throwing you onto another path. Couldn't agree more. Look, I think as I reflect back on my life, and you know, as I was writing my book, I found it very cathartic. There's something called narrative therapy, and for me, it was very therapeutic to go through and recite and review and revisit, and then get the learnings out of everything that happened there. I came to understand that there's purpose to our pain. I really believe it can be; it doesn't have to be right. Like you can become a victim too. You can choose that as a path, or you can choose to actually apply purpose to it. And the difference is time and reflection. If you take the time to reflect on it and learn the lessons, you can then turn your struggles into strength, right? Your adversity to your... Right. Don't make those mistakes again. You'll make a whole set of new mistakes,
1: but don't make... I find like in companies, it's like, look, let's make mistakes, but let's not make the same ones, right? There's no excuse for that. We're going to make new ones just naturally. That's right. I agree 100%. So, toy company 2.0 which was tech for kids and then that had
0: a complicated ending as well right yeah i mean that's where you and i got to know each other so tech for kids was the new venture and where you talked about you know the fundamentals that was going to be a toy maker and man it was awesome we launched that actually there's a story about how that almost never happened we were literally two weeks from the time we funded it to when we launched and the great recession and if we'd been two weeks later it never would have happened but it was also terrifying, terrifying and exciting to be building through a period when the entire world was basically putting the speed brakes on, right? But now I look back at that, that was our unfair advantage because I had taken out a million-dollar loan from the same group of investors at 24% interest, which is very sobering, by the way. I mean, I know our interest rates are higher today. You could do better than that from a loan shark, I think. <laughs> I think so, yeah. Maybe not
1: now, but a couple of years ago.
0: That's right, Yeah. And repay in one year. And it was personally guaranteed. So I was very motivated to get things moving. And because the world had kind of paused, we were the only ones really working. And we just found opportunities through the sheer force of will once again. And of course, having a creative team. Yeah, that business, again, scaled to be something infinitely bigger. And you kind of teased out that it had an interesting ending. So I'd had this group of investors with me since like 2006. And you know, what most people don't realize is that when you bring on money, you've agreed to sell your company. Like if you bring in outside capital, you've agreed at some... They need to get their
1: money back somehow, right? Unless you have an ability to pay massive dividends, then yeah. That's
0: right. So there's some agreement in the future that you're going to have an event. And uh, these guys are starting to say, hey, you know, it's like we were there in 2006, it's 2016. We need to kind of see some things happen here and it was a good news story we had turned this thing around and interestingly we were one of like 10 companies in portfolio we're the only one left standing all the other companies are gone so we were the one i guess unicorn not really by the billion dollar valuation standard but the one thing that worked out so we started the process of trying to then see if we could find a partner and ultimately that led to merging our company with another company in the states and the company was similar in size the co-founder of that company was 10 years my senior. He had had a spectacular exit back in the early 2000s. And you know he's really beloved in the toy business. And he was excited about the opportunity, the opportunity that we would bring our two companies together. And it was going to be a roll-up mergers acquisition opportunity where we were going to look for other toy co's and buy them and do something that would eventually allow us to go public. And on paper, it looked awesome. I mean, we would take efficiencies of operations. We'd combine... Our skills in terms of we were really good in certain categories of products. They were good in other categories and they were going to complement each other. And we were going to scale something big. And unfortunately, our cultures just didn't blend. So, you know, we merged the companies together, despite the fact that I knew that the cultures were not going to work. And primarily because my motivation was financial, I was looking for an outcome for the investors. But also after being through some scarcity things, you know, my wife having. Yeah, a couple of bankruptcies. A couple of bankruptcies. You know, it's not an awesome day when they come to collect on your house. That's really got some brain damage for your wife, definitely, when that happens. So I was looking for an opportunity to actually get some abundance in our life. And so I just chose to ignore the cultural differences. 90 days from the time we signed the documents to merge the companies, which, by the way, led to a financial outcome, which was great for everyone. I was fired from a company that I had (laughs) co-founded. And suddenly, again, I'm on the outside looking in and I'm bewildered and I'm like, what just happened to me? And it was a pretty tumultuous point in my life. And you remember those days because we were actually informed together. But, you know, after almost 30 years in the toy business, I was suddenly on the outside looking in and my life was about to change dramatically. Well, it's two things.
1: One of the things I love about it, and again, you talk about this in the book and we'll dive into that, but you could wallow in your sorrow or you could look at that as a period of reflection and what's it giving you and what doors is it opening as it closes, similar to before. But there's a story in that that I'll always remember. And I would say like entrepreneurship's really sexy in the rearview mirror. People see, particularly when someone has a favorable outcome and, oh, they're lucky and, or, oh, this, and they just don't see... Everything that came before it, and all the near disasters and failures, and and a lot of people never get to sort of a positive outcome moment. And as you said, it was a pretty good moment. And I actually kind of remember it's one of those like flashbulb moments for me, where our whole group and our whole forum was getting together with our spouses. And I think you ended up closing that day, and you came down, and everyone was like, "Congratulations!" And I oh, know you guys were exhausted. And someone said to her, "Well, you know, how does it feel?" And she said, "You know, truthfully, like the last time I was in that lawyer's office, like we were declaring bankruptcy, and it was like some major PTSD. <laughs> like here's this sort of moment, and that just occurred to me again. There's a price that the families pay and the spouses pay, and I think people on the outside." just don't have a sense of that. And I think Silicon Valley equity has a little bit distorted the real risk-reward that a lot of people go through. And we're seeing it now. People lose their lives and their houses and their business. And that was more of the trade-off. But Silicon Valley equity is really different. You know, you get upside, you're giving it to you, and there's no downside. That was just a moment that always kind of stand out for me.
0: Yeah, man. Look, I think that entrepreneurialism has been disney and celebrated. It still is something that requires risk that the average person is usually not willing to make. And that's why to become an entrepreneur is to be the exception. Not that you know we're better. It's just you have a risk tolerance that is greater than the average person is willing to take because you're trying to create something into an uncertain future. We call ourselves time travelers. We imagine a future and then we come back and we are working to actually come to create it.
1: And it doesn't always work out. No one tells the stories though of the people who bankrupted their family and all this. Those are not Told. And so they just hear survivor bias. Yeah,
0: it's exactly the victors get to write history. And we look at these storybooks. We look at, you know, these Mark Zuckerbergs, and this is the way it is for everybody, but for every one of him, the laneways are scattered with the corpses of so many casualties of business that didn't work out. Uh, Yeah, I was gonna say I've
1: shared this before with people, but again, they're not people aren't looking for empathy. I've seen a lot of people who have had a positive outcome. And who have gone out of their way to be generous with people on their team or, you know, give them part of that upside for which they did not have risk. I still have not been shared a story. And a lot of times they'll still be criticized for what they didn't do or else or otherwise. But I still haven't heard a story where someone went under and the employees pulled out money to help that person. And maybe it's not that they should, but I just think people see one side of that equation and not the other, which is like, when you go under, there's no one to, to help you.
0: Yeah. Look, starting a business takes an incredible amount of courage. I've actually spent time thinking about this because I think there's kind of a cycle, a flywheel that's created. You know, there's Aristotle identified the four original virtues as wisdom, prudence, temperance, and courage. And if you unpack those four, he talks about courage kind of being the cardinal virtue because none of those other three can happen if you don't first step out into the unknown. And so, as I think about it, I think about that there's this point of curiosity that we have in our lives. So, I think most founders, entrepreneurs, they're curious about something and they use their curiosity to drive some creativity to how can I solve that thing or how can I make that better? How can I add value? But none of that matters until they have the courage to try. You know, it comes down to an idea. Well, ideas are like noses. Everybody's got one. Until you actually do something with it, it doesn't matter. But what you should expect on the other side of courage is you're going to hit challenges you're going to hit resistance. And it's going to require additional courage and creativity to overcome that. And if you're willing to go through that cycle, it creates character. Character for you helps build clarity. Clarity gives you confidence, which once again, ignites your curiosity. And it just creates this flywheel of continuing to try and find ways to build value in the marketplace if you choose. Or you hit resistance, you surrender, you victimize, I quit. And that is always an option but it's not one if you want to live a life of abundance.
1: Yeah, and it's looking forward, not backwards. So we'll get into the book. You have this new book, Startup Santa, in which this whole story is very cleverly tied into different lessons of different toys. But we'd be remiss and not sort of Catching up on. So, from that being fired, walking out, I remember you coming to the group and talking about it. And hey, this is kind of the end of the world. So, then some reflection, fast forward a couple of years, and you get together with another guy who's in our format and you guys are overseeing one of the fastest growing businesses in North America, in Pila. So, tell us about what Pila and Lomi are doing. And it's literally
0: like, you haven't seen it on Instagram, it's kind of everywhere at this point. Yeah. So, again, this is that. Let's step back. And just kind of revisit this. I'm fired from the company. How do you get fired from something you co-founded? I guess in a way I felt somewhat okay because Steve Jobs got fired from his company too. Although I'm not necessarily saying I'm Steve Jobs, but at least I had some. There's some solace in that. Yeah. Exactly. And then of course, reflecting back, I've gone through a couple of bankruptcies. But in every case, if you take the time to reflect and choose again, it creates a new future. So when I got fired, again, I had an opportunity to think about what I wanted in life. And that came from what I didn't want. And so there came up with three principles. The first was life plan over business plan. And my next venture, I wanted to prioritize my life plan over my business plan. I'd paid all kinds of lip service that, you know, my life plan was important to me and that, you know, my family and my faith and my fitness and all that were like critical elements of my life and values that were there. But if you looked at my calendar, it lied. My calendar tells the truth in terms of where I was investing my time. And I wasn't investing my time in a way that was in concurrence with that. So life plan over business plan is number one. Number two, the no asshole rule that I just, I was no longer going to spend time working with people that were basically going to pull me down. None of what I didn't want, less of what I tolerate and only what I love. That was the filter by whatever opportunity I was going to look at. And the third was, I only want to focus on things that make impact, things that ultimately would build value for people, the planet, myself, in congruence together. And so having that filter allowed me to evaluate new opportunities. And as you know, Matt and I were in form with you, we're actually in Boston coming to visit you, I think the forum meeting was, and uh, we were delayed for an Air Canada flight sitting in the lounge in Boston. This
1: episode is brought
0: to you by Visit Williamsburg. Yeah,
1: I saw that story in the book and I was thinking that must have been a forum meeting. That's exactly
0: what it was. So Matt and I are sitting in the lounge and Matt starts talking about, again, Matt at that time owned another business in Canada, but he'd invested in a startup called Pila. Pila made these compostable phone cases. And he started talking about how he'd invested into it and he was applying his marketing genius to it. And the thing was taken off and he was just frustrated because it kept breaking. They couldn't scale it. uh, They couldn't keep up with the manufacturing. There was all kinds of challenges. And literally every problem that he was describing from somebody who had uh, experience making consumer products, I'm like, I know how to fix that. I can help you with that. Like, this would be okay. And it just started, it planted the seed for the idea that potentially he and I could work together. And fast forward to, you know, a few months later, I joined as the third co-founder of the company. We scaled Peel a Case. We brought outside investment, so venture capital. And we had Marcy Venture Partners join on with us. And that's Jay Brown and Jay Z's uh, fund. And it was really cool to have notable people like them decide that they wanted to lean into our cause, that business could be a force of good, that delivered a triple bottom line, you know, profits, which are ultimately what's sustainable, but things that benefit people and the planet. And then we ran into this problem that we were selling all these compostable cases. We're scaling the company to a healthy eight figures but the problem was at the end of life where do you put those compostable products because there's no infrastructure and people were ended up sending their phone cases back to us so we said we got to solve this problem and that's what led us to ultimately create lomi and lomi became it's the first smart waste device that takes organic waste which is both food waste as well as compostable products and turns it into a healthy regenerative soil supplement that grows plants and it is an incredible technology. That not only solved the problem of cases, but eliminated all the greenhouse gas emissions that were as a result of food waste going to landfill and has this virtuous benefit that the output sequesters carbon. So it's literally the first appliance that actually generates carbon credits, which is super cool.
1: Yeah. And so for everyone who's like, I don't understand what it is, this device, I would say it kind of looks like a breast pump, surprisingly, it sits on your counter. <laughs> it has the look of like a Medela thing and you put your food scraps and increasingly more types of other things like Pila and stuff and you turn it on and in the morning it's dirt. And it seems like a magic. It's not true, but there are 10,000 videos you can go watch all over the Internet of user generated content of everyone doing this. And it really is like this little magical Dirt device. And, and I think you were one of the most successful Kickstarters ever,
0: right? How many did you sell on that? Yeah, 20,000 units, generating, I think, about 7 million US. So it was the largest crowdfunding campaign of 2021. And it's the largest clean tech crowdfunding campaign of all time. And I should mention that, Bob, you are actually on our board of advisors and have been very instrumental in helping guide our strategy as it relates to developing and building out the, and scaling the opportunity.
1: I would say from that experience and watching the notes in the meeting, it is very clear that Brett, again, has taken all of these learnings and things that he is not going to do again or make that mistake again and sort of embed them in the, in the principles. So that's the business story. Let's talk a little bit about the book, Startup
0: Santa. Tell me where the title came from. It's definitely attention grabbing. Well, look, I think I wanted people to know that this is for people who start startups. Founders are our target here. Secondly, I'm the real Santa Claus. I just don't have as big a beard or belly, but I'm a toy maker from the North. Most people know that Canada is close as you can get to the North Pole. And I made toys for close to 30 years of my life. And I've done everything from the distribution side, which you heard about already, to ideation, development, manufacturing, and delivery. And look, I think at the end of the day, as I mentioned in the beginning, I've been a playful person my entire life you know, I really subscribe to the idea that we don't stop playing because we get old, we get old because we stop playing and that we should stay youthful and that play is a part of our problem solving and how we develop and that toys actually teach us things, that there's lessons to be learned from toys. So the impetus for this book was really started off as a memoir. I was going to tell like, you know, I just wanted to go through a cathartic narrative therapy process of like just unpacking everything that happened because there's a lot of sort of, um, I want to say force gump moments. You know, I've been in New York on 9-11 to the volcano in Iceland when it went off and grounded air travel and a bunch of stuff in between. So it was crazy life. And along the way, I said, you know, actually, there's more here that would be a value. And so every chapter is identifies an iconic toy that you would know, tells a bit of the story of where it came from, the inspiration behind it, what it teaches. And then I take stories from my entrepreneurial journey, being the real Santa Claus. And usually it's going to be wisdom from my wounds. These are stories of things I did wrong. I affectionately tell people. Wisdom from wounds. I like that. (laughs) I have a PhD in DUMB from the School of Hard Knocks. And so there's two different ways you can learn in life. There's knowledge, learning from your mistakes. And there's wisdom, learning from the mistakes of others. I've garnered a lot of knowledge, and you have the opportunity to have the wisdom of that experience <laughs> so you can avoid the mistakes I've made.
1: So, let's give people a sample of one of these analogies. One of the, or a couple I really liked. One is the, the Jenga blocks, and we play a lot of Jenga. And, you know, like there's the pieces that slide out easy, and there's the pieces that'll knock down
0: the whole tower, right? So, talk about this one. Yeah. So love Jenga. It is one of my favorite games to play. But what you'll notice in Jenga, there's foundational blocks and there's flexible blocks. And so just like that in life, there's values in our life that are foundational, things that you should just not touch, things that are non-negotiable. And then there's things that are flexible. And so for me, I've identified that there's eight in my life and there's four that are foundational, four that are flexible. So the foundational ones are my faith, My family, my fitness, and my finances. And I use finance kind of loosely. It's nice because it's an F, so the alliteration works, but really it's the economic engine. Like, what is your passion, purpose, and how can you generate results as a result of that? So, those four things are what you can never not pay attention to. They need daily input, daily investment of your time and energy and attention to keep them going. Then there's the four flexible blocks, which for me are fun, friends, refining, which is, you know, continue to get better and grow yourself. And then finally, freedom, building more freedom for your life, imagining better things for your future, for those around you, your community. And those are things that need attention, but they can be intermittent. You could take periods of time and not invest there.
1: Versus if your health breaks,
0: the whole tower comes down, right? A hundred percent, yeah. The other thing I would say is this, there's seasons to life. Not all time in life is equal. So if you're starting a startup and you're saying to me, Well, Brad, I got this startup that requires an incredible amount of energy and I can't give equal time to my faith, my family, my fitness. And you know, it's the financial pressure on me at this point. I would say, okay, understood. And you're right. You know, to get one of the Elon's rockets in out of the atmosphere, 90% of the fuel is burned up just to get it there. So it's gonna take extraordinary effort just to get you to. Escape velocity, but it's a matter of coming up with a negotiation and setting expectations ahead of time with the stakeholders and those others in life to say, "Look, for this period of time, this season of life, I'm going to be over investing into the business, but it's not forever. It's for this season." It's integration, not
1: balance. This notion of this perfect scale in harmony, I think, it's just not realistic, right? You have fitness days, you have work days, you have family days. They have to come together in a
0: complementary way. That's right. Yeah, and I agree with that. I'm a big believer in whole life integration, and that we should be blurring the lines between work and play, and family, and and intermixing them. Right. So I agree with that. So that's the idea behind Jenga. All right. So taking it up a level, and
1: I think probably the biggest pain that most people have grown a business will resonate with, with your analogy of the toy box, which toys you decide to bring and which toys you decide to get rid of. Right.
0: Yeah. Look, if you have a business and you're a leader in that business, in the beginning, you're going to be doing everything that's just, we're generalists. That's just the way it's going to work out, particularly if you're a bootstrapper. Maybe if you're venture back, it's different, but most of us are bootstrappers and that's where we started from. But as you grow that opportunity, you scale it, you realize that you can't do everything. Dan Sullivan said, most people think they can double their business, but think 10 times. If you think 10X, you know that there isn't 10 times the effort. You may be able to double your effort, but you can't do 10 times the effort. In that case, you need to go find people. For me, I did this all the wrong way, you know, in terms of finding people and why we hire them. Well, let me ask you a question, Job. Tell me who you think are the two or three most fascinating people in the world. Most fascinating. Currently alive.
1: Yeah. I mean, for better or for worse, I think Elon Musk is pretty fascinating. Let's think of... I'm so not good at like pulling stuff out of thin air. How about that? Does that suffice? Or
0: you want one from like a different discipline? Okay. That's fair. Let's see. I'll add to it. Richard Branson... Oprah Winfrey. we got three there, right? So describe some character attributes of those people. Like, What is it about those people that you think is fascinating? I think they're usually charismatic.
1: They're kind of free thinkers. They're new ideas. They're pushing some envelope and pushing you to probably think or look at things in a different way.
0: Got it. So they're innovative, right? They're charismatic. They have integrity. They have all kinds of virtues that you would say are reflective of their attitude. Yet, if you think about how most people hire, they put out these job descriptions, say, so-and-so individual that's got to be a good multitasker that needs this much minimum education. that needs Which is an oxymoron in itself, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> so we're hiring for aptitude, or at least the way we're putting out our job requests is we're focused on the aptitude piece when really what we should be thinking about is the attitude, which then in turn informs the culture. You know, And as a CEO of a company, there's three things that you should be focused on. It's what is the vision and the future of the company, living out the values. And by the way, the values are representative of the people you hire, right? It's just that is you can say what they are, but it really comes down to the minimum behavior you're willing to tolerate with an organization. And then finally, hiring and empowering the people to get it done. Those are the three things ultimately you want to get to when you get past that startup phase to something that's scaling and expanding. You need to be focused on those three things. And if you're doing it focused on aptitude-type hires, which I did initially, you will hire a bunch of people that potentially can become talented terrorists. You know, we were talking about Lencioni, and he talks about like the ideal team player who's hungry, humble, and smart. Warren Buffett says has intelligence, initiative, and integrity. If you have only two of those three things, you're ultimately going to end up becoming a disaster for the organization. And what I love about Box is I actually use Toy Story. And talk about, okay, these guys have this mission. They're going to rescue Buzz. And each one of them has a superpower. Binoculars can see far. RC can go fast. Slink can stretch. And they use their superpower to achieve the vision mission. But ultimately, they're aligned in terms of the culture that they've created. And I think it's just a perfect metaphor for how we should be thinking about the teams as we build them out. And we just seek to build the perfect toy box with people who have skills that complement yours. Don't compete, but compliment, but most importantly, are aligned with the culture values of the company.
1: Yeah. And it's not only finding them, I think leaders are responsible for that rugged curation. And I think when we see that you have a problem and you share a story of a sort of a terrorist in the book, I'll let people read about that. When you see you have a problem, I think a lot of times we're like, yeah, maybe it'll go away if I ignore it. And then it just comes back kind of worse. And I think most of my regrets in leadership are not kind of acting on those things earlier. And I think I got a window into your leadership early in that forum. We were talking about this story too, when we had this incredible group of people and we had homework for each thing and we would do the homework and everyone be prepared. And a couple of times in a row, there was someone in the group who just wasn't prepared. It wasn't even on the same page. And I think. As we were all going around do this exercise, and they clearly hadn't done it, and they made up a bunch of stuff, and it didn't even make any sense, we're all thinking it. And this is a whole bunch of CEOs in the room. We're all thinking it. And and you're like, look, I got to stop us right here. Like, It's clear that you haven't done the homework, you haven't been paying attention. We're wasting everyone's time here in a super calm manner. And that was the last time that person ever came to the meeting. And again, this was a group of a bunch of A-type people in this room, but only one was willing to say what everyone was thinking and you in calmness. But yeah, I mean, that curation and pruning the weeds is so they don't overgrow everything else is critical.
0: Yeah. The adage is to hire slow and fire fast, and it's easier said than done. Yeah. There's no advice that is easier said than done than that. A hundred percent. I've identified the fact that, you know, founders in general are optimists, right? They can see the potential. That's why they're entrepreneurs. So that is when they interview people to bring them in the company, they're looking at these people through the lens of potential. And initially, most of my hires were because I went too quickly. And I'm looking at the potential that that person didn't necessarily see in themselves until they see it in themselves. It'll never show up in your business as a result. So we now say that more important than hiring the right person is ensuring that we keep the wrong people out. And we've created this gauntlet that is to protect me from myself. (laughs) (laughs) and to protect matt from himself so that people have to go through and we change the narrative instead of the possibility of these people being great fits it's like can you qualify you are considered not qualifying until you do we literally look at it as a high performance team you need to earn your spot in the team you have to prove that you can play full out on our team and that means you're going to go through this gauntlet of four maybe even five interviews with a number of reference checks along the way And even with that, we still get it wrong sometimes, but at least our ratio of getting it right is much more improved and we've been able to hire some real stars. And
1: by the way, not hiring a star, the best quote I've ever heard is from, and I don't know her name, but it's a kind of historic record-breaking Michigan softball coach. And she said, if I miss on a recruit, they beat me twice this season. If I put the wrong recruit on my team, they destroy my team every day. I think people are so focused on, the one that got away versus making sure that you get the people who are going to be on your own team, right?
0: Yeah. So I belong to a business forum and we have the former founder of Remax in that forum, Dave Leninger, fascinating guy who's just had this storied life. And we were on one of our retreats and question was asked to him, what was his greatest business regret? And I'm expecting some juicy story about a deal that he missed out or misplayed or of some sort. And his answer, which shocked me, was I didn't fire people fast enough. And I'm like, what? And then he unpacks it. He says, first person that you're letting down is yourself because you're tolerating behavior that's beneath your minimum acceptable level. And you can't trust that person to do the work they need to do. So now you've you've given up mind and attention to having to babysit whether their work is going to qualify. Second person is the team around them because the unsaid truth in the room is everyone sees them as an underperformer. And you've now set a new level of what is acceptable in the organization, by the way. And the third person you're letting down is that person because they have a place where they can shine. They have gifts and talents that will actually serve them. It's just not with you. And the sooner you release them back to the marketplace, they can go find out where they can thrive. And I think that's hard for a lot of founders. We think we can help people and fix them. But I think Reed Hastings keeper test is actually the right question. If that person, anybody in your organization was to come to you right now and say, I'm leaving you, how hard would you fight to keep them? And if the answer is you wouldn't, then you should be taking that person now and releasing them back.
1: Or if you wouldn't hire them again, you were looking at your team and say, well, that's okay, but I wouldn't hire them again, right? (laughs) 100%. Well, look, in addition to all the business adversity, as you were building this last company in COVID, you talked about in the story, this kind of bookend of losing both your parents during COVID. There are so many things I remember your dad Kind of your dadisms that that he shared with you. One of the ones I love from the book, I guess, told you a lot when you were a kid, is you can either pay the pain of discipline or the pain of regret. Did I get that right? Yeah. Tell us about
0: that. Yeah. Look, COVID. I talk about the tale of two cities. Is the best time, the worst time in many ways. I appreciate the time because it forced us to focus on what's important, and I think a lot of people benefited from that. But for me, it was pretty tragic losing my father to COVID and my mother. On the other side of it because she missed out on a heart surgery because of the strains on the healthcare system but yeah my father was my hero and losing him was the greatest loss that i have yet in my life and he at a very early age set a real inspiring sort of direction in my life and he used to say that quote and it would bother me right in fact it, i wrote it out and put it on a plaque next to my bed so i could put it in a picture frame What is the full sentence? What is the full? So the quote was this, in life, you're going to pay one of two prices, Yeah, the price of discipline or the price of regret. The price of discipline will cost you something and weigh ounces, but the price of regret weighs tons and will crush you. And it used to just irk me and bother me that I never, ever wanted to pay that price of regret, that that was going to be too much. And in fact, the five regrets of the dying, which if you haven't read that book, I think it's, it is such, yeah, it's all things that people didn't do, right? It was things they didn't do. It's regrets, not things that they did, but things they didn't do. And so my motto is that I want to die young as late as possible and to leave it all behind on the field of life. I don't want anything left. I want to make sure that I wear out, not rust out. So when I'm laying on my deathbed. I'm not thinking about the things I didn't do that, you know, Jim Rowan used to say, In life, you may not be able to do all you find out, but make sure you find out all you can do. And I want to know that I found out everything that was possible within me. All right, Brad, last question for you. Multivariant.
1: So it could be singular, repeated, or personal or professional, but what's a mistake you made that you've
0: learned the most from? The biggest mistake I made was not understanding how to parent my kids in a way that was relatable. My kids are arrows in my quiver that are firing into a future I'll never see. And I've landed at this place where I now have learned that I need to live my life and live stands for love them unconditionally, inspire them by how I live my life instead of push them, right? V is for vulnerability. Show up and understand that I'm human and I'm on this journey and I haven't figured it all out that actually this is my first time parenting. And as a parent, I'm learning how to parent them while they're learning how to become parents, right? And then finally experiences ensure that most important things that's ever going to happen in their life are the experiences that you create, that you co-create together. The things don't matter. It's the memories, it's return on experience that is going to matter the most. So that's twofold create magic experiences. And secondly, don't be a helicopter parent and rob them of the experience of growing and learning through struggling.
1: Particularly for people that are high achieving, I think it puts a disproportionate burden on their kids.
0: So just live your life for your kids. That ultimately is the thing that I'm now. And the good news is I screwed it up for most of it. My kids are now in their 20s. Like I've got adult children, you know. And best time to plant a tree 10 years ago, next best time today.
1: The guy said yesterday, uh, Scott Galloway has a line. I'm going to butcher it, but something about like we're too much hand sanitizer on our kids, and they're not actually developing any of their immunity. Like we need to let them build their own immunity and stop dousing them in in hand sanitizer. And you know, helicopter parenting is a decade old at this point. Now it's just snowplow. Now we don't hover; we just get the stuff out of the way. So I think, look, if you're thinking about leadership, I think more of us should think about parenting through the lens of leadership. I wrote an article that was sort of a preface to a potential book or something, and the analogy was. Most of us, there's no 360 review when we're parenting, but if some of us brought our parenting skills into the workplace, we would be in a performance review so fast that you need to go to special training because no one on your team likes you. It's probably similar behaviors outside of the
0: workplace. I think that's well said. And I agree. Snow plowing and I love the hand sanitizer. I think that is actually post COVID. It's very apropos. So for sure. All right, Brad, where can people learn
1: about you, Pila, the book? Uh, where should they go?
0: Yeah, look, there's a few ways. So if you want to learn about Pila Case and Lomi, go to uh, www.pilacase.com or lomi.com. If you want to learn about me, you can visit my website, which is bradpeterson.com. And everyone gets my last name wrong. Mine's the Danish Peterson. So that's P-E-D is in Delta, E-R-S-E-N. Most people spell it with O's and T's, but that's not going to get me. And uh, if you want to check out the book, StartupSantaBook.com. If you go there and sign up, there's some free videos, resources, tools. Yeah, going to make it worth your while.
1: Yeah, I've been listening to Brad's wisdom for a year and I told him I read the book. It was like Pocket Brad. Everything that right there on a pocket and it's very clever. It's very well done. Anyone who enjoyed these toys will enjoy it. So,
0: Brad, thanks for spending some time with us today. Bob, it's been great to invest time with you and excited to have you come out and visit us and we can make some magic memories together. Absolutely. It's on my list. I promised
1: you I visited and I will soon. So to our listeners, thanks for tuning in to the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to Brad and Startup Santa on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, as always, I'd really appreciate if you could leave us a review as that's what helps new users discover the show. Thanks again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating.